So we're dealing with Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 24 this evening. And this passage contains a horrific event. Look at Genesis chapter 4 and verse 8. Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. The biblical account is so sparse. It just states it so matter-of-factly. It's not a long, drawn-out narrative. Cain spoke to his brother, Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Kent Hughes asks, Did Cain crush Abel's skull? Watch him die like a bug in the dust? Did he cut his throat with Abel's sacrificial knife and bleed him like a sacrifice? Did he choke Abel with his own hands until his eyes lost their sight and there was no breath? We're left to our imaginations as to how Cain killed Abel. But whatever the case, the reality of the first murder is horrendous. Murder itself is bad enough, but Sidney Gradanus notes that the narrator underscores that Abel is Cain's brother by using the word brother in this narrative seven times. Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. This is awful. As a father of two boys, I can't imagine how my heart would break if one killed the other. Imagine how shocking it would have been for Adam and Eve not only to see their son die at the hands of their other son, but how shocking would it have been for Adam and Eve to see the first human die. This is the first human death. What a shocking, awful, horrendous turn of events has occurred in Adam's lifetime. He was placed in the garden without any necessity that he would sin. There was no internal compulsion necessitating that he would sin. There's no reason why he had to sin. His nature was not corrupt as ours is ever since the fall. He and his wife Eve walked with God in the garden in the cool of the day. But Adam rebelled against God. And because he was acting as a representative of the human race, as the covenant head of the human race, when he sinned, all of creation, uh, particularly all of the human race, inherited not only guilt, but corruption. And he's expelled from the garden. He no longer walks with God in the cool of the day. Imagine how shocking the death of that first animal or those first animals would have been as God kills in order to clothe Adam and Eve in skins. So here they are now outside of the Garden of Eden and one of their boys kills the other. Just think about that. I had a great aunt who lived to be 107 years old. She was born in 1901 in Toronto, Canada, and she died in 2008 in the same house that she was born in. Think of all the change that she would have seen in her lifetime. World War I, World War II, the invention of the automobile, the invention of the television, first black and white, then color, then the internet, cell phones, air travel, Imagine what she would have seen in her lifetime. But all of that pales in comparison to the drastic change 
that Adam saw in his lifetime. An uncorrupted, unfallen world where Adam walked with God in the cool of the day to now seeing one of his little boys grow up and murder his other little boy. This is just awful. This is horrendous. And this is heart-level corruption at work. The corruption which Cain inherited from his sinful father rears its ugly head here. This is an instance of human corruption at work. Cain killing Abel. Sin. The first human death is the death of one of Adam's own boys at the hand of his brother. Heart level corruption at work. What happened, the murder itself was awful. And the heart dynamics underneath what happened were awful too. Let's consider some of those. The first heart dynamic that we see at play in Cain's heart is hatred toward Abel, obviously. Cain hated Abel. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, we read this. We should love one another. We should not be like Cain. We should love one another. We should not be like Cain. You see the contrast that's implied there? We should not be like Cain. Instead, we should love one another. Cain did not love his brother Abel. His heart attitude toward his brother was the opposite of love. When we're commanded in the New Testament to love one another, Cain is used as a negative example. What not to do. But 1 John 3, 11 and 12 goes on. We should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So envy led to hatred in Cain's case. He began with envy and ended up with hatred. There are many paths to hatred, it seems to me. We can begin with envy. We can begin with contempt. We can begin with fear. We can begin with probably almost any negative feeling entertained against another person. And we may progress all the way to hatred. In Cain's case, it was envy which turned into hatred. But for us, for whatever reason, in whatever way it springs up first, whatever form it springs up first, whatever seed we find in our hearts that may spring up to hatred, it goes something like this. First, we wish that we didn't have to deal with a certain person. We entertain such thoughts. We allow resentment to build. We brood over such thoughts. And we end up wishing they didn't exist. We end up wishing that another person had never been born or that they would die. We're not given the backstory beyond the most recent incident in Cain and Abel's life, this bringing of their sacrifices. We're not given much of the backstory other than that one incident. But it's safe to say that Cain almost certainly underwent a process of change in terms of his disposition toward Abel. He began with some negative feelings and then eventually he became prepared to extinguish his brother's life. So Cain hated Abel. That's one of the things that's going on at the heart level leading up to this murder. Cain also rejects God throughout this narrative. And this is no fault of God's, of course. God is certainly not unjust, such that He warrants the rejection of Cain. God does no one wrong in this narrative. 
did God owe Cain acceptance? Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. God rejected it. As we saw last week, He rejected it because it's implied here that He had specified otherwise. That Cain should have brought a substitutionary sacrifice and not the fruit of the ground. He rejected it because it was not brought in faith as Abel's was. Did God owe acceptance, therefore, to Cain? Did Cain obligate God to accept him when he offered up the fruit of the ground to God? Did Cain put God in his debt? If so, then God was unjust to reject Cain, and Cain would therefore be just to reject God. But if not, if God was not unjust in rejecting Cain, which in fact He was not, then Cain has nothing to complain about. God hasn't treated Cain unjustly. God has treated Cain justly. And more than simply being just, throughout this whole narrative, throughout all of chapter 4, God is gracious. Throughout all of chapter 4, God is gracious. We will recall that God was gracious to Adam before the fall. That God gave Adam much more than he owed to Adam, strictly speaking. That God, for example, didn't owe Adam relationship with himself. God could have remained transcendent, never condescended into relationship, into covenant with Adam. He didn't owe him that. God didn't owe Adam taste buds and nerve endings to feel pleasure and so on and so forth. God didn't owe Adam the bounty of the garden and so on and so forth. God was gracious then. God is still gracious to mankind after the fall. And we see that even here in this narrative. We see, first of all, the fact that Adam and Eve are still alive after sinning against God. On the day they ate of it, they died spiritually. They became dead in their trespasses and sins and the principle of death was implanted into them such that they would eventually die biologically as well as spiritually. But total and complete and utter death, eternal death, eternal punishment in hell did not immediately fall upon Adam and Eve at the instant of their sin. This is God's patience. This is God's grace. This is God's grace to Adam and Eve, and this is God's grace to Cain and Abel. The very fact that Cain is breathing, is living, the very fact that he has fruit of the ground to bring, is God's grace. The Scripture says that God sends the sun and the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. And both of those are a blessing. It's not meant, sometimes we think about sun as a positive thing and rain as a bad thing. But in that context, it's both, right? That, we, that crops need rain and crops need sun. And so that verse is teaching us that God sends His blessings upon the righteous and the unrighteous alike. There is common grace at work in this world that God deals kindly. God deals graciously with everyone. Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. Right, we saw last week that God provided for Adam and Eve's material needs in clothing them with skins. There may have been more significance to it than that in terms of foreshadowing God clothing us in the righteousness of Christ, but it's certainly not anything less than God meeting the material needs of Adam and Eve. How long do you think a garment made of leaves will last? God is meeting Adam and Eve's material needs, at least doing that in clothing them with skins. We see throughout the rest of chapter 4, so much common grace. So much common grace. He, if we can be certain from the witness of Scripture that anyone in the Bible was not saved from their sin, Cain ranks way up there. In the New Testament, he's always spoken of badly, and there's not a hint of faith or repentance here in chapter 4 of Genesis. And yet, look at the grace 
that God shows not only to Cain, but to Cain's descendants. When you go on and you read, Cain has a wife and a son. Well, there's grace right there. A blessing. A wife is a blessing. A son is a blessing. Cain is allowed to have a family. And look at what Cain's descendants do. One of them dwells in tents and has livestock. He he develops a nomadic lifestyle. He develops a, a culture, as it were, which persists for hundreds of years, millennia. He sets a precedent for nomadic peoples, living in tents and raising livestock. He develops a system of migrating from place to place to feed off the land. That's, that's Jabal in verse 20. Then his brother, Jubal, he was the father of those who play the lyre and the pipe. Music. Look, Cain's descendants are among those who, who pioneer music. Common grace. We have no reason whatsoever to believe that these people were worshippers of Yahweh. And yet, look, the Lord, the Lord allows them to make these cultural developments. Look at verse 22. Tubal Cain is the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. He's a metal worker. Again, common grace. If we think back to the creation mandate, we think about Adam's responsibility to bring light, order, life. We see that even in Cain's descendants, there's not a complete extinguishing of productivity, of valuable contribution to human life and flourishing. There there is a spiritual deadness to those who are outside of Christ Jesus, but that spiritual deadness, um, though it affects the totality of our being, it doesn't mean that we're as bad as we possibly could be and that we contribute nothing worthwhile whatsoever. People who live even outside of Christ can make valuable contributions to society. They have gifts and talents and can work at least partially toward the fulfillment of that creation mandate in bringing light order and life and this is grace this is grace God provides a sacrificial system after the fall of Adam and Eve into sin whereby fallen man may continue in relationship to God Right? We, we reasoned last week that if everywhere else in Scripture God is to be worshipped according to His prescription, in other words, the way that God prescribes that He should be worshipped is the only acceptable way to worship Him, then it stands to reason that in Genesis chapter 4 the same holds true. And that the reason, at least part of the reason that Abel's sacrifice was accepted was that it was prescribed And part of the reason, at least, that Cain's sacrifice was not accepted was that it was not prescribed. Cain did not approach God on God's terms. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. But for now, just think about it. God prescribed that a substitute animal should die in the place of sinners in order that fallen man may continue to be in relationship with God may continue to worship God, may continue in uh, covenantal relationship with God even after the fall. Again, grace. Grace. Grace is all over this chapter. And this is just stuff you might not immediately notice. You might not pick up off the surface of the text. But just look at how he deals with Cain himself. Cain murdered his brother Abel. Cain murdered his brother Abel. And Abel, we're not given any reason in this text or in later passages of Scripture which mention Abel, we're not given any reason whatsoever to think that Abel instigated anything with Cain. 
that Abel instigated any problems. We're not told that Abel was needling his brother about the fact that his sacrifices were accepted and Cain's weren't. Right? We're given no indication that Abel had a self-righteous spirit and was condescending toward his brother. We're not told anything of the sort. We're told that Abel was a righteous man. We're told in Luke, the Gospel of Luke that Abel was a prophet. We're told that in Hebrews 11 and verse 4 that he brought his sacrifice by faith. We have every reason here to think that this is entirely, entirely unjustified. And yet look at God's dealings with Cain. He comes to Cain and says, where is Abel your brother? And look at Cain's answer. I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? The impudence. That Cain, the murderer, should answer God this way? Impudence. When God came to Adam, said, where are you? Adam shifted the blame and so on and so forth that he didn't answer properly. But look at just how much more brazen Cain is. I do not know. What do you mean you do not know? He's right where you left him. Out in the field. It says, your, bro- your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Verse 10. Which might just mean that his blood flowed into the ground. But more likely, seeing as Adam and Eve even had the impulse to hide their sin, much more likely Cain buried his brother's dead body, as most murderers even up to the present day do. We instinctively try to cover our tracks when our consciences scream out that we've sinned against God. What do you mean you don't know where your brother is? He's in the hole where you buried him. The Lord says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth. So he curses him. In a sense like this, you have misused the purpose of, your ground, of the ground. You acted like the ground was for burying dead bodies. When really the ground is for bringing forth fruit. Because you have abused this so, I'm banning you from it. Something like that is the thrust of what God is doing here. He's giving Cain a, a curse that is sort of fitting sort of suitable because Cain has misused the ground sowing his brother's blood into the ground instead of seeds Cain is banned from working the ground the ground shall no longer yield its fruit to you but what does God say straight to hell for you Cain no you shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth so again there's banishment There's the taking away of his vocation, his livelihood. He's losing his career, as it were, and he's banished. You could imagine if you lost your career and you were banished from your home. It would be a tough sentence. But is God doing anything that Cain does not deserve? No. Again, he's treating Cain justly, and more than that, he's giving Cain more than he deserves. Straight to hell for you, Cain, would be exactly what Cain deserves. But God is patient, even with Cain. And then listen to Cain's response. My punishment is greater than I can bear. Oh, poor me. Cain plays the victim? In this situation, Cain has just killed his brother, buried his body, lied to God about the murder. God has dealt graciously with Cain, not as severely as he could or should. And Cain says, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. As if Cain cared about 
being hidden from God's face. Since when is Cain concerned about a right relationship and intimacy with God? That he's complaining about being hidden from God's face. I shall be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Look, he, the, the killer is worried about being killed. Right? The dangerous one is worried about being in danger. The one who exploited the vulnerability of his brother, the trust of his brother, by murdering him, is now worried about being vulnerable and not being able to trust anyone. What a terrible response. There's no hint of contrition. There's no hint of remorse. No hint whatsoever of repentance. It's basically poor me. But look at what God does. Oh, now you've pushed the limits straight to hell for you now. Look at what God does. Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Wow. Look at how graciously God deals with Cain here. It's not nearly as severe as it could be as He deals with Cain. So, Cain rejects Cain hates his brother Abel and he rejects God's authority over him and he rejects relationship with God in spite of all this. We're not led to believe anywhere in Scripture that Cain repents. He knew the right way to worship. God says as much in verse 7 of chapter 4, if you do well, will you not be accepted? That implies that Cain knew how to do well. Cain knew what it looked like to bring a right sacrifice. That Cain knew what it looked like to be a right worshiper, as his brother Abel was. So Cain, all the while, had this door of repentance open to him. All the while. But we're not led to believe that he ever took it. So he rejects relationship with God in spite of all God's goodness, all God's grace, and all God's patience towards him. He does not perceive God as gracious but he perceives God as being too harsh and too severe. Many, even nowadays, are like Cain. God has not dealt with them as severely as He could. Rather, God has dealt graciously with them, even in the realm of common grace. And yet they go through their life thinking that God is harsh with them, that God is severe with them. They refuse to repent. They refuse to come find grace even more grace in God. But in in addition to rejecting God, Cain's behavior evidences even hatred toward God. Kent Hughes says, murder is an act of hatred toward God for making or accepting another who offends us or troubles us or is favored with gifts and honors we do not have or stands in our way. If you think about where did this person you hate come from? Well, their mother and father, of course. But where did their mother and father come from? Well, there's two ways to look at that. You could go all the way back to Adam and Eve and say, where where did they come from? God. Or you could say, well, where did the whole process of reproduction and so on and so forth come from? At the end of the day, however you get there, you have to say, people come from God. God puts people here on this planet. And so when we hate someone else... Ultimately, we hate God. The Apostle John draws out this connection at length in 1 John, talking about if we don't love our brothers, we don't love God. There's a connection between the way that we deal with other people in our horizontal relationships and the way that we deal with God. And so, in hating, in killing his brother, Cain is manifesting hatred for God. Proverbs 19 Three. Well, I must, I must have read it a hundred times in my life. Or more. I've read through the Bible cover to cover probably 15 or 20 times. And I've read through Proverbs uh, a chapter a day so that I go through Proverbs once a month for 
probably several years in totality, so I've read the book of Proverbs so many times. I tell you what, this verse struck me like it was brand new. This week, like I'd never seen it before. Listen, Proverbs 19, verse 3. When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. Man, that hit me like I'd never seen it before this week. But isn't that true? Don't you see that all the time? People, people make sinful choices. People take foolish and stupid and sinful courses of action. And then they become angry about God at the situation they end up in. And isn't that just the way it is with Cain? Cain kills his brother and then complains to God, my punishment is greater than I can bear. His heart is raging against the Lord, right? Or, or even God questioning him. It's like he's perturbed that God would even ask him, where is your brother? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? A man's folly brings his way to ruin, but his heart rages against the Lord. You see that Godward hatred, that Godward rage in Cain here in the response. Jude, verse 11, talks about the way of Cain. Calvin, I think, gets the best sense of that when he says that the way of Cain is perverting God's worship through an ungodly and wicked heart. Cain perverted God's worship through an ungodly and wicked heart. There was hatred in, God, in Cain's heart toward God even, even before he murdered his brother Abel. Even when he brought the wrong sacrifice with the wrong heart attitude, there was hatred in his heart toward God. There was an ungodly, wicked heart that was at enmity with God. Even from that time. And we know, we know that it's not just the worst of the worst that hate God. But we know from uh, the, the rest of the scriptures that dead in our trespasses and sins, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. All have become worthless. That there's this enmity in our hearts toward God in this natural state. That we resent His authority over us. We feel angry about God's demands on our life. We feel angry with God for dealing with us in whatever manner He does. For the way He has unfolded providence in our lives. How many times have you heard someone say, well, if there's a God, then why did my life turn out this way? Or if there's a God, then why did this happen to my nephew? Or, oh, I would never worship God after what He's done to me. Or things like this. People's hearts rage against God, as Cain's did. And so they pervert God's worship, either failing to offer it altogether, or offering it in, on their own terms in whatever way they see fit. They live how they want, doing what they want, thinking what they want, pursuing what they want, treasuring what they want, saying what they want, and resenting God for His claim upon their lives, and resenting God for His rejection of them due to their sin. This is the way of Cain. Humans rage with passion for everything but God, and then rage with anger against God for raging in anger against them because of their own sin. This is the way of Cain. And in addition to hatred toward Abel and rejection of and hatred toward God, we see lastly in Cain, and we've already touched on this a little bit, but a rampant narcissism, a self-centeredness instead of a God-centeredness. When God confronts Cain, Cain shows no remorse whatsoever for his sin. He's perturbed that God would dare question him about Abel. He's thinking only of the discomfort that he would experience by God's curse. And again, many people think this way. They just The mentality is that this world exists for my gratification. The mentality is that this world exists for me and my pleasure, my glory, what I want, whatever, down that track. Self-centeredness, 
versus God-centeredness. So, what we see when we consider the heart dynamics is that Cain is not an anomaly. Cain is not just this one bad apple that is the exception to the rule. But when we look at the heart dynamics, we can see ourselves as being like Cain. Like Adam, so is Cain. Like Cain, so is Lamech. We read about him in the last part of the chapter. He's bragging about his sin. He has no remorse, no repentance either. He's self-centered. He hates God. He hates the people around him. It's like, this is like the original gangster. Right? I've killed a man for wounding me. A young man for striking me. Right? You touch me, I'll kill you. This is Lamech's attitude. Right? He has no regard for human life. Right? So, like Adam, so is Cain. Like Cain, so is Lamech. Like Adam, like Cain, like Lamech, so are we. So are you. These heart dynamics that we're here in Cain are also in our hearts, if we're honest. Maybe we haven't murdered somebody, but these heart dynamics are here. And certainly unbelievers are in the same situation as Adam and Cain and Lamech. But even believers are in the same situation as Cain with sin crouching at our doors also. As God says to him, back in verse 7, sin is crouching at the door. The difference between us and Cain and Lamech as Christians does not consist in an an exemption from temptation. So can't you see some of the same heart issues in yourself as we've seen in Cain? Maybe we've not literally murdered anyone, or maybe you have, I don't know. But surely you can see that your heart is a seedbed where sinful thoughts of others have grown. Surely you can see that though you may not have utterly rejected God and come to hate Him in the degree that, God, that Cain does here in chapter 4 of Genesis, you will see sins of the same category in your heart, if you're honest. And indeed, therefore, sin is crouching at your door too. There is a wild beast wanting to devour each and every one of us. Sin. And it is inside of us. Sin is not something that is outside of us. Sin is something that is inside of us. And so it's like Satan is compared in 1 Peter 5, 8 to a lion or... In Genesis chapter 3, he's a serpent. We could think of sin as being like a lion or like a snake, but we shouldn't think of it as being like a lion or a snake that is external to us. Right? Satan is external to us, but sin might be compared likewise to a fierce animal like a lion or a snake, but sin is inside of us. We have this children's program that might... Uh, a member of my family gave to us it's called What's in the Bible and for the most part it's actually pretty good it's just little cartoons for kids teaching them about the Bible teaching them some basic theology and stuff like this but their section on sin is terrible terrible and here's why it's terrible because sin is represented as these ugly little characters that attach themselves to people And so a person's walking along and then here comes this little ugly little creature that jumps on him and attaches himself to him. And what's the message? Sin is external to you. Sin is these ugly little creatures that have attached themselves to you. And what you need to do is you need to take a bath and get these things off you implicitly. We cannot think of sin like this. Sin is inside of us. Sin is crouching at the door of our hearts, as it were, always ready to destroy us. That lion is there, ready to bite us, ready to claw us to pieces, ready to crush our ribs with a swipe of his paw. That snake is there. We just watched the Jungle Book 
with my family. And Ka, the snake, stands ready any chance that it gets to hypnotize Mowgli, to wrap himself around Mowgli, to put Mowgli into a deep sleep, and to crush Mowgli's bones, and to swallow. Sin is like that. Sin is ready if it gets the chance to hypnotize us, to put us into a deep sleep, to crush us, to swallow us. So sin is crouching at our door also. Therefore, we must fight it or we must die. You can't sign a truce with a snake. You can't sign a truce with a lion. You can't declare terms of peace. You can't sit down and negotiate. If you meet a lion on the path, you must fight or die. If you meet a snake in the path, you must fight or die. You cannot remain neutral in this fight because sin will not remain neutral in its fight toward you. So as John Owen said, we must be killing sin or sin will be killing us. Therefore, we must be dealing with sin all the time. If we're like Cain, we should heed the way that God tells Cain to respond. The way God tells Cain, the the way God deals with Cain, pardon me. The textual terms here in this passage are ruling over sin. In verse 7 he says, Sin's desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Another term that's used in this passage is doing well. That's in verse 7. If you do well, will you not be accepted? These are the terms that are used here. Doing well and ruling over sin. Those are the textual terms. Cain needs to deal with sin by doing well and ruling over it. What what does God mean when He says this? The concepts represented by those terms are as follows. Cain is to drop the narcissism, drop the self-centeredness, and embrace God-centeredness. One of the main problems in Cain bringing the offering of the fruit of the ground to God was that Cain was trying to approach God on Cain's terms rather than approaching God on God's terms. And then we see that that's still his mentality. It's all about Cain. Even after he kills Abel and God comes to confront him, it's still all about Cain. Cain's mentality is what Cain wants, what Cain cares about, what Cain thinks, the way Cain wants to do it. The first thing that he should do is drop the narcissism. Drop the self-centeredness. Reorient his life around the fact that God is central. He is objectively central to this world. This world exists for God, for God's glory. Things should be done the way God wants things to be done, so on and so forth. So Cain should drop the narcissism. That's just implicit in this text. There's no verse that says that. But when you look at the mentality and the way that Cain went wrong, the opposite would be God-centeredness. Which involves then relating to God on God's terms. A right relationship to God is by faith. We're taught that in Hebrews 11.4 where we see that Abel brought his offering by faith. Implicitly, Cain didn't. And Romans 1.17, the just shall live by faith. We read elsewhere, without faith it is impossible to please God. Cain should approach God by faith. But faith must necessarily have an object. Faith can't just be faith in general. I mentioned to you a while ago, that a friend of mine once told me he was going to get a tattoo across his back. He's, a, he's an unbeliever and he told me he was going to get a tattoo across his back. He said, believe. And I said, well, believe in what? Said, just believe. <laughs> I took the opportunity to tell him, well, that's just kind of nonsensical. Like it actually doesn't 
That doesn't make any sense. I wouldn't tattoo that across your back if I was you. Right? Faith or belief must have an object. What is what so what should Cain have believed? What should what should Cain have had faith in or faith towards? Well, obedience in the first place. Cain should have had faith in God's revealed will. Right? He should have believed what God says he wants is what God actually wants, and he should have offered obedience in the first place. He should have done well in the first place. He should have approached God with a substitutionary sacrifice for his guilt, as God had prescribed. And again, we know that God had prescribed that because he accepts Abel's sacrifice. Elsewhere in the scripture, we learn that we're not to approach God as we see fit. Just because you mean well, it doesn't mean that God will be pleased with what you do. We see that when God strikes Uzzah dead for trying to steady the ark. We see that when God strikes Nadab and Abihu dead for offering unauthorized fire. If Abel had merely meant well, God would have rejected him as well. So Abel obviously implicitly then must have offered a sacrifice according to God's prescription. Cain should have done the same and brought a substitutionary sacrifice. And then after Cain did not obey in the first place, and after Cain did not bring a substitutionary sacrifice in the first place, after he had failed to exercise faith in God's revealed will in those matters, he should have repented. God came to Cain after he had rejected his offering, but before he killed Abel and said, Why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. This is a clear call to repentance. Cain, turn around. Danger. You're on the wrong course. This is an invitation to Cain to repent. Faith would have said, Oh yeah, I should heed this message, believe what God says, and respond accordingly. He should have brought the right sacrifice the next time around, confessed his sins, begged God's pardon, and turned. So this is what faith would have looked like. So doing well and ruling over sin would have looked like responding in faith toward God. Faith that obeys in the first place, Faith that brings a substitutionary sacrifice where obedience is not offered. And then faith that repents. When we realize that we've done wrong, faith that recognizes that the door is open to return and to come back. This is what Cain should have done. This is what is meant by ruling over sin and doing well. These are the concepts that we see here in Genesis chapter 4. And so... If this is how Cain should have responded, and we are like Cain, we should also respond accordingly. And yet we live in a different place in the biblical narrative. We live in a different stage of redemptive history. We should not go out and find an animal and kill it in our place, bring a substitutionary animal sacrifice the way that Cain should have. These things were types and shadows, as we talked about last week. These things were instructing us. These things were meant to teach us about who God is and who we are and how we are to relate to Him. That He is holy. That we are not. That our sin deserves to be punished. But that God will accept a sacrifice in our place. This is what these animal sacrifices were intended to teach all the way along. We read in Hebrews that it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And we, we also realize that all those who offered those sacrifices over and over and over again would have realized that. Because we read that otherwise they would have ceased to have been offered. If they could take away sin, then they would have ceased to have been offered. But because they were offered over and over, people should have realized these things are actually not that effective. If you try to hang up a picture on your wall and you use double-sided tape and the picture keeps falling down over and over and over and over again and you keep using double-sided tape to hang it up over and over again, after a while you should clue in, this is not effective. 
so it is with the animal sacrifices. If you have to do it over and over and over again, you should clue in. This is not effective. So all of these things, the very repetition of them, would have prepared Old Testament worshippers to understand that we need a substitute that can actually deal with sin. So these Old Testament animal substitutes were creating categories in our mind to understand the work of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who came to die as a substitute. And He did not die over and over. He does not die over and over in Roman Catholic cathedrals every week as the Mass portrays Him to do. Jesus died once, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. Because He died once, we know it was effective. He doesn't have to die again. When God goes to Cain and pleads with him to repent, tells him to turn, and deals graciously with him, Matthew Henry says, It is an instance of God's patience and condescending goodness that He would deal so tenderly with so bad a man. We find that in this day and age, in the free offer of the Gospel, that God is still in the business of dealing so tenderly with so bad men as us. So bad women as us. God has not changed from Cain's day to ours. God still is patient, condescendingly good, still deals so tenderly with such bad men and women. He is still giving us so much more than we deserve. He is still withholding strict justice, not sending us straight to hell. But as 2 Peter chapter 3 says, He is patient toward us. That day of judgment will come. Eternal hell, eternal torment will happen for those who are outside of Christ. But 2 Peter chapter 3 tells us that He is patient towards us. That day delays not because God is incapable of bringing it to pass, not because God has forgotten, not for any reason like that, but that day is delayed because God is patient toward us, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is presently staying His hand, not executing strict justice right away upon us and upon our friends and upon our family members and upon our neighbors. Not because He is forgetful, not because He's impotent, but because He is patient towards us and He's patient towards them, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He's pleading with the human race as He pleaded with Cain so long ago. If you do well, will you not be accepted? Warning. Sin is crouching at your door. You are in danger. You are in peril. In the exposition of the Scriptures, in the proclamation of the Gospel, God Himself is pleading. Acts chapter 7 and verse 51 recalls the words of Stephen preaching to those who were about to kill him. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. The implication is that in Stephen's preaching, in the preaching of the prophets in earlier days, in the writings of Scripture, the Holy Spirit is pleading. 
The Holy Spirit is calling. God is patient towards bad men and women. Just as He was patient toward that bad man, Cain. If you do well, will you not be accepted? Sin is crouching at your door. Warning. Turn, as it were. Turn. Bring that right sacrifice. Turn and no longer be self-centered, but be God-centered. Turn and no longer think that you can approach God on your terms. You've got to approach God on God's own terms. Turn. You can't think that you can come empty-handed. Bring a sacrifice. Turn. You can't bring whatever sacrifice you want, but only that which is prescribed by God. Turn. It has to be a substitutionary sacrifice. Turn. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Turn. There is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Turn. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Turn. Jesus said, Whoever comes to Me, I will never cast out. Indeed, when God reasoned with Cain, it was an instance of His patience and condescending goodness that He would deal so tenderly with so bad a man. And when God commands the church to go and to preach the gospel to every creature, when God commands the church to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that He has commanded even to the end of the age. It's an instance of His patience and His condescending goodness that God would deal so tenderly with such bad men and women. The Lord was gracious with Cain. The Lord is gracious with us. And He reasons with us even now in the proclamation of the Gospel and pleads even now by His Spirit as He did with Cain so long ago. Turn, as it were. Turn. Be careful about that sin crouching at your door. Do well. Come around. Bring that right sacrifice. Trust. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Crucified for sinners as a substitute. Trust in Him. Rest your sins upon His head. Be clothed in His righteousness. And you will be accepted. Though sin is crouching at your door, God has graciously made provision for the human race to be reconciled to Him. Be careful. Sin is crouching at your door. If you do nothing about sin, sin will devour you. Sin will kill you. Sin will land you in hell. Come around. Listen to God's gracious invitation to Cain. And hear that same invitation ringing in your ears. Why is your face downcast? Why are you going to die? Though sin is crouching at your door, turn, turn. Look at this gracious God in Genesis chapter 4. Realize that that same gracious God is in heaven today. Still dealing graciously. Still dealing tenderly with sinners. Turn. Just as He said to Cain, so He says to us. That offer of grace still stands. Turn. Turn. Sin is crouching at your door. Deal with it. You can't remain neutral in this fight. Come approach God on His terms. And His terms are faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance for our sin. A life reorienting away from being revolving around ourselves. Reorienting our lives to revolve around Christ Jesus. 
faith in Him, trust in Him, repentance toward Him. Sin is crouching at our door and it really would kill us if we don't deal with it. But there is a right way to be related to God and God graciously extends that invitation even to Cain. He extends that invitation graciously also to us. Also even to our friends, our neighbors, our family members. We need to get reconciled. We need to plead with our friends, our family members, our co-workers, all who are outside of Christ Jesus to likewise deal with that sin that is crouching at their door and come approach God on God's terms.